Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, the, the title of this, this chapter is The Woman, the Child, and the Dragon, because those are the, the three images that, that John, the revelator, sees. And since we're diving back into Revelation, I know it's been a few months since we've been there, so I want to just start by reminding you of, uh, of where we've been and what we've, what we've learned uh, so far. The outline to Revelation, there's, a, there's an introduction or a prologue in the verse, first eight verses. It tells us exactly what we're going to see in the, in the book of Revelation. I know a lot of people are intimidated by Revelation, but, but I think when you, just, you see how simple this, this, this outline is, it, 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 really, it really helps you. God sets the table up front. He tells us about the things that are, and that, that contains the seven churches we we looked at the seven churches of, of Revelation that, that goes from chapter 1 through chapter 3. Then there's the, the things that shall take place after. Those are future things. Chapter 4 through chapter 22. And that, that includes uh, the tribulation period. It begins with this throne room scene. There's the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And, and there's also three pauses, and that's kind of where we're at in chapter 12. We're, we're at the second pause in, in, the, in the, the scene of the things that shall take place after, after, the, after John's day, after the seven churches. And then, and then it ends up with all things new in chapter 21 and 22. We, we all love that, that part, it's the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And God showed us the vision of Jesus Christ in, in chapter 1. The seven churches in John's day. There's that throne room scene where the, the transfer of the title deed. There's the breaking of the seven seals in chapter 6 through 8. And then there's the seven trumpets that are contained in the seventh seal. And now before God unleashes his, his, fuel, his, his full wrath in the bold judgments, he, he pauses. And I said chapter 12 which is where we're at, begins in chapter 10 up through chapter 13. It's one of the three pauses or interludes. It's really an opportunity for the reader to catch their breath because it's just so, it's so overwhelming when you, just, when you see this judgment upon judgment upon judgment. And the, the second pause in chapter 12 is right after the seventh trumpet. Chapter 11 ends with the, the seventh trumpet. You can see that in, in chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in, in heaven. And the, the scene of chapter 12 is this vision, this, this sign that appeared in the heavens that John sees, and it's describing the war in, 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 in heaven and earth between the woman which is Israel, the child, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the dragon, which is, which is Satan himself. And Satan has always been at war with, with God, and, and nothing has changed. He's been at war with God since, since he fell from heaven. Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19, describes his, his fall. And the Bible calls this, this angelic being Lucifer, son of the morning, he was created by God as the, the highest of all the angels, but his lust for pride uh, uh, led him to rebel against God. And, and since that day, Lucifer has, has been known as Satan. He's the, 
he's the arch enemy of God and there's been a constant war going on between Satan and the purposes of God and the people of God. And when Satan fell, he took, as you know, the Bible says he took a third of the angels with him in opposition to their creator. Now, don't ask me why they would do that, why Satan would do that, why the angels would follow him. It's a mystery. I, I don't have an answer for that. Probably Eve uh, ate of the fruit and, and rebelled against God with all of the goodness. But that's exactly what the Bible says took place. And Satan... From the point of his fall up until today, has declared war on God and, and anything or anyone that, that God loves. He, he, Satan goes into the Garden of Eden and deceived um, uh, Eve and, and tempted them to fall. He, he's opposed the truth and the spread of the gospel. He, he wars against the church today. You can see that through all of the persecution that's, that's around the, the globe. A.J. even talked about some of that uh, last Sunday. And this long war will find its climax in the tribulation period. The entire tribulation period, Satan will be involved, the Antichrist, Satan himself, and the, the last three and a half years, is, it's going to really intensify. And, and you're going to hear some of that described in chapter, chapter 12 to, tonight. And, and this feudal war that Satan's been raging will be over. Whenever, whenever King Jesus returns. And um, when he does, the Lord will defeat Satan and his demons once for all. But until that time, this, this war remains. In Revelation chapter 12, John sees a, sh a sign of a shining woman who gives birth to a king, a child who will be a king. And then both uh, the, the, the woman and the child are pursued by the, by the dragon. And yet, as we're going to see at the end of the chapter, they're preserved by, by God. Let's read chapter 12, and uh, then I'll show you the outline. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet... And on her head, a crown or a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should Feed her there 1,260 days, or three and a half years. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them, for was found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 
Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused him day, who accused them day and night before our God, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their death, did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half or uh, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed out water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up this flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 12 has, uh, the, the, the theme is the great conflict in heaven and earth, but it has six parts. We covered the first three, actually, at the last sermon, so I'm going to briefly review those, and then we're going to focus on the, on the, the last three tonight. There's the symbol of the woman and the child in verse 1. There's a symbol of the dragon with the tail, verses 3 and 4. There's the vision of the kingly birth, verses 5 and 6. Then there's the final conflict in heaven, in verses 7 through 9. There's the confirming voice from heaven, after Satan is, is cast out, in verses 11 and 12. And there's the protection of the persecuted woman, in verses 13 through 17. And that's the, that's the entire chapter. I know it's a lot, but um, it's powerful whenever you start digging into it. Let's look at this first one, the symbol of the woman with, uh, with the child. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, John saw a great sign that appeared in heaven. A sign is a, is a symbol representing something else. And um, though it's seen in heaven, it portrays a reality on the earth. And the woman that John sees is the nation Israel. That's, that's very clear. Israel is called the wife of God in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 54 verses 5 and 6. And the church is called the bride of Christ in the New Testament. They're distinct. They're not the same. The church is not Israel and Israel is not the church. And Israel is God's wife because he's already made a covenant with her and and he's already received her during the, the time of Moses. Exodus 6, verse 7 tells us, God says, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the, the bondage or the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land without, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so God is called, Israel is called God's wife because he's already taken uh, Israel as, as, as his wife. But the church has been betrothed to the son. The church is called the bride of, of Christ. And, and the Bible tells us that Jesus purchased the, the church with the dowry of his own blood. 
And the bride is still waiting for the bridegroom to return. We're, we're looking for Jesus to, to return. And as John uh, chapter 14 tells us, when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That was all wedding language. And when I return, I will receive you unto myself and I'll take you to, to my father's my father's house, and the, the son will come for the bride in the rapture of the church. And by this time in Revelation 12, that's already taken place. We know we're looking for it, but Revelation, these are the things which will, will be, will take place after. And so the rapture's already taken place in chapter 12. We saw that earlier in Revelation. And it's very clear from how the woman is described that John is talking about Israel and, and not the church. She has a, she has a glorious dress. See if I have that, uh, back here. She, her, her lofty feet, she has this starry crown with, with, um, with the twelve tribes of Israel represented in it. And then she has this agonizing labor. Jesus was, was born of the Jews. And, so the Jews brought forth the, the Messiah. And so you can see that, her, her glorious dress. Looking for what it says in verse 1, uh, one the, the woman was clothed with the sun. It, it represents the glory, the special status that God has given to Israel because they're his, they're his chosen people. And Deuteronomy makes it clear that, that Israel's not special or there's nothing inherently um, uh, special about them. It's, it, they're special because they're, they're God's chosen people. You see that in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6. For you're a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So why did he do that? But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so this woman is, is clothed in glory. Israel has a special glorious status. They're God's people. She also has these lofty feet. The moon is, is under her feet. And we talked about this uh, several months ago. The, there are several interpretations of, of what, what this, this moon under her feet means. I, I think it's very clear. Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11, Jacob is referred to in Joseph's dream. You remember Joseph, he has this dream. And Jacob is referred to the sun, and Rachel is referred to the moon, and the, the stars are the sons of, of Jacob. It's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant, where God promised that the children of Abraham would outnumber the stars of heaven. And that makes perfect sense, given the crown that's a, it's upon her head. Look at what else it says. A woman clothed in the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. The twelve stars of the twelve tribes of Israel. It's probably the easiest part of that symbolism to, to see. But it goes on. Look at verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And the woman that John sees here not only has this glorious dress, not only is she lost, 
moon's under her feet, and she has this crown on with 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 um, twelve stars. But she's pregnant, and she's about to give birth. And in fact, she's pictured in in labor, and it's the picture of Israel who gives birth, brings the Lord Jesus Christ in into the world. And the Bible says that God brought forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And Jesus was a Jew. He was a seed of Abraham. He was a child of Abraham. And the fact that this, that the woman that, that John sees here is, is pregnant tells us that this is historical. It's a, a symbol of Israel who's, who's going to bring forth the, the Messiah. But, but John sees another great sign. Look at, look at verse 3. Another sign appeared in in heaven and it's the the symbol of this great dragon with a with a tail a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his head so john sees a woman described in a specific way he also sees a great dragon and that dragon has a has a tail it's is seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns. I don't get all wrapped up in that. That's, that's just basically his earthly puppets. It's you don't want to get you don't want to get sidetracked in the symbolism. It's not that complicated. Heads and horns and crowns are all symbolic. They're they're symbol of kingdoms. They represent authority, just like the Bible describes that that the the husband is the head of the wife. It's symbolic for authority. Is authority over her. And the horns, the horn of an animal, represents strength or, or power. You might think of like a, the horn of a rhinoceros. And an animal's horn was, is their weapons, and it indicates power and, and strength. This is a, repre- a reference to Daniel 7, 8. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, describes seven heads and ten horns and crowns, and they all refer to worldly kingdoms that are that are under the, the power of, of, of Satan. Look at where they were in verse 3. They're on the dragon's head. The seven diadems were, were on his head. It, it, Satan has control over the, over the kingdoms of the earth, both, both now and in the future. God's given him a measure of authority. And Satan turns his head and the, and the crowns follow. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the... Uh, of the air. He's the prince of this world. And for a time, God's given him a measure of dominion on the earth. And I don't think it takes uh, uh, a rocket scientist to, to figure out that the world's empires are satanically fueled. Murder and power and greed, all things ungodly. And not only does he have these kingdoms on the earth that are under his control, but he also has forces in heaven as, as well. Look at verse 4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. A third of the stars of heaven. Satan's original rebellion in Ezekiel 28 convinced a third of the angels to follow him. And when they did, these, these angels became what we know as, as demons. And ever since then, they've served Satan's purposes. And so whether it's the devil's earthly puppets or his demonic followers, they both have one target. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and his followers. And in this case, the mother of Christ being the, the nation of Israel. 
Look at where the dragon stands, about halfway through verse 4. He threw them to the earth, and a dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. You see Satan's abiding hatred. He stands over the woman to devour the child. This is a, uh, it's a, it's a very graphic uh, picture. And Satan has always had a desire to exterminate Israel. And he, he desired to exterminate Israel because God loves Israel, but also because he knows his Bible. He knows Israel is going to bring forth the, forth, forth the Messiah. He tried to do that in Egypt. Uh, he attempted to do that through Herod after Christ was born, and he's never been successful. But Israel has felt much pain because of the, the dragon's war. He, he still persecutes uh, the Jews. And this graphic picture, the, the picture of the dragon standing in front of the woman waiting for her to, to give birth so, so he can consume the baby. And the illusion is, is unmistakable. It's, it all surrounds the circumstances of the birth of Christ. Christ was born in Bethlehem. He was born under Roman rule. He was sought by Herod. Herod sought to destroy him and he had to flee to Egypt because Herod gives the order to to kill the Hebrew babies under two years of age. And, and you know the story. Satan was unsuccessful and Christ was, was born. And so now in verses 5 and 6, you see, this, you see this kingly birth. There is a, there's a child and the child's going to rule. A child will be king on the earth. The child will be enthroned in heaven. And then the, the woman will be preserved. Look at verse 5. He's not successful. The woman bears a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should, that, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. The woman gives birth to a man child. Um, in the Greek. It's an unmistakable reference to, to Christ. And look what the child's going to do. He's going to rule. He's going to rule all nations. The child is going to rule the nations, including the ones that Satan currently has under his power in, uh, in verse 3. One of, our, uh, one of the, the passages we read every Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for... For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government shall rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And from then on and forevermore, the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will accomplish this. This child will be king on the earth. He'll rule with a rod of iron over the, over the nations. It's a reference to, to Psalm chapter 2, verse, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And Jesus will rule the nations one day from his throne in Jerusalem, he'll rule with a rod of iron. He leads us like a shepherd does his sheep, but he rules the nations with a rod because, because they won't submit. Their hearts are, are still in rebellion. 
And not only will this, this child rule, he'll be caught up to God and to his throne. Look at the end of verse 5. And her child was caught up to God. Harpazo, meaning to, to snatch up. It's a picture of the ascension of Christ. And in Acts 1, after Jesus calls his disciples together... He gives them their final instructions. He ascends into heaven and he takes his place at the right hand of God. Romans, Romans 8, 34. Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1, 20. He's seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3, 1, where Christ is seated at the, at the right hand. The ascension of Christ. And now John sees what will happen with Israel after Jesus ascends into heaven. The woman will be preserved. Look at verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. And she's going to be cared for there. The woman flees into the wilderness to a place God has prepared and she's going to be nourished for three and a half years. Now, chapter 11, the chapter right before, is the midpoint of the, of the tribulation. And, and, and you remember what happens. Uh, it, it's, it goes okay for the Jews for the first three and a half years. The Antichrist rises, and everything looks to be okay. The worlds begin to flock to him, begin to follow. And then he does something significant, something that the Jews can't, can't handle. He sets up the abomination of desolation. He sets up an idol in the temple. And he declares himself to be God, and in declaring himself to be God, he demands the, that all of the world worship him. And, and Israel refuses to do that, and that's the turning point. And so the, the second half of the tribulation period, the, the next three and a half years, he persecutes the Jews. And the tribulation period has two purposes. It's, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, and it's also the wrath of the Lamb. And so when you see these, these seals and the trumpets and the bowls, God uses that as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's, Israel is under distress, and, and he does that to discipline them, to prepare them for the coming Messiah. But he also pours out his wrath on the unbelieving, on the unbelieving world. It's to bring Israel to repentance and prepare them for the millennial kingdom, the second coming of Christ, and it's... It's also God's wrath on the, on the unbelieving world. And now, in verse 7, you see this final conflict in heaven. Michael's victory in, in the heavens and Satan's vanquishment to, to the earth. Now, here's a new scene. Look at verse 7. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out, and the serpent of old called the devil, and Satan, who, declare, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast with him. So John sees this, this vision. And his eyes are diverted from this fleeing woman on earth to this cosmic battle in the heavens. And the battle is between Michael, one of the chief angels of God, and, and the other angels, God's holy angels, the ones that are still loyal to him. 
and, and Satan and, and his demons, and, and they wage war, and it specifically tells us here that they did not prevail. Satan loses the battle in verse 8. They did not, they did not prevail. They weren't strong enough, literally. And from that moment, after this cosmic battle in the heavens, they're going to be cast out of heaven. And that's going to be a really, really bad day for, for the earth. As wicked as Satan is, and as much influence that he has in the world, it's, it's going to be nothing compared to what's going to happen on, on this day. And the Bible will tell us why, as we'll get there in, in just a minute. Daniel chapter 12 prophesies about, about this scene. Daniel 12, verses 1 through 4. At, the time, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people, that's Israel, will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and, and knowledge shall, shall increase. Daniel's talking about this, this very moment right here, and beginning in verse 7. And it's been shut up. It's been sealed. It hasn't been talked about it. What's in that has not been revealed until Revelation chapter 12. And, and John sees it and then reveals it, it to us right now. And up to this point, before this cosmic war in the heavens, Satan still had access to the very throne room of God. He's... He's, he no longer has the status in heaven that he, ha, that he had as the, the angelic choir master, but he still has the ability to enter into the throne room. And Job chapter 1 makes that clear, right? You've read the book of Job, where Satan accuses Job before the very throne of God. And Satan has been doing that accusing ever since. Look, if you would, at verse 10. It says, Then I heard with a loud voice saying from heaven, Now salvation and strength and, and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. Look at this. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. Satan is called the great accuser, the accuser of the, of the brethren. And that's what Satan was doing in the book of Job, and that's what he's been doing ever since. And a lot of times, whenever he accuses us before God, he speaks the truth, doesn't he? <laughs> Sadly. Clearly, sometimes he lies and exaggerates that. But many times when Satan brings up my name before God, he's pointing out a sin that I've committed or pointing out something that I've, that I've failed to do. But I don't have to fear, and you don't have to fear, because even though he whether he, would he, would he, whether he lies or tells God the truth, the Bible tells us that while Satan accuses us in the very presence of God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when Satan brings accusation against us, Many times, accurately, the Lord Jesus right there at the right hand of God holds up His nail-pierced hands and says, Father, His words are true, but I bear in my body the very proof that their transgressions have been covered by my blood. See the marks and be satisfied. 
And the angels lay their hands over their mouths, and the saints in heaven bow down and worship the Lamb that was slain. And at this moment in history, Satan will no longer be able to do that. It'll be a great day. He'll be restricted to the earth, and there he'll continue to deceive the world. Look at what it says at the end of verse 9. The great dragon was cast out. He's restricted, no longer able to, to enter into heaven. The serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were, were cast out with him. And what comes next shakes the very foundations of the earth and unleashes Satan's unbridled anger. And there's a confirming voice that comes from, from heaven in verses 10 through, through 12. The martyrs get the honor of announcing the defeat of Satan, and that will be to the earth's horror or woe. Look at who makes this announcement in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren... Who is this loud voice? Well, it's not God. You can tell that by what they say. The salvation and strength and kingdom of our God. And the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. We know it's not the angels that are saying that. Who accused them day and night before our God. And they overcame Him, in verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. These are the voices of the saints in heaven. Declaring the long-awaited victory and triumph. Over Satan, the martyrs of all the ages, in all of their number, those who were persecuted by the devil and all of his earthly subjects, he killed their bodies, but he couldn't destroy their souls. And when he's cast out of heaven, they rejoice, and they do so with a loud voice. They're the ones that overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their, of their testimony. The individuals that God gives the privilege to announce Satan's defeat and the coming of Christ's kingdom in verse 10 are these martyrs. What a privilege. And we normally think persecution took place in the first few hundred years uh, of church history. When they're being fed to the lions and when Nero would dip Christians in wax and set them on fire to light his gardens. But in fact, there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 50 years, statistics tell us, than, than in the church's first 300 years combined. Yeah, A.J. told us about several that Paul Pillay and, and the ministry there trained in, in the most recent graduating class that, that actually gave their lives as martyrs for the cause of Christ. Those brothers will be in that number. And they're going to be shouting the victory. And while they have this honor, there's, there's going to be great horror on earth. Look at verse 12. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth 
Rejoicing in heaven, woe on the earth. Why? For the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why is his wrath so great? Because he knows that he has only a short time. At this moment, Satan will know that the end is near and his time is limited. And he'll intensify his persecution for the inhabitants of the earth. Now, Satan's not ignorant. He's read his Bible, as I said. He's just drunk with pride. He thinks perhaps maybe he can, he can win some victory. And he knows that when the kingdom comes, he's going to be bound for a thousand years. And so he's doubling his efforts. He's angry. And John shows us the target of his wrath in verse 13 through, through the end of the chapter. And God's protection of the persecuted woman. Look at verse 13. After he's cast to the earth, in verse 13, Now the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth. When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, which is Israel. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for three and a half years, a a time and times and a half time. Say that fast three times. From the presence of the serpent. Satan, in his anger, being restricted from heaven, cast only to the earth, knowing his time is short, persecutes the woman who gave birth to the child. That's Israel. It's nothing new. It just increases. I tried to look up some statistics before tonight. And the Anti-Defamation League, which is the the organization that keeps an eye on anti-Semitism and and hatred of the Jews, said last week in the United States alone there were over 121 threats made against Jewish schools and civic groups. 121 threats in the United States alone just last week. And the cemeteries. You probably saw that where they, they, they turned over all of these all of these uh, tombstones. A Paris suburb, a kosher supermarket and pharmacy was smashed and looted by a 400-strong mob. And the crowd chanted with and carried banners that said, Death to the Jews. And Satan hates the Jews because God loves them. And during the time of tribulation period, it's going to be off the charts. And if God didn't preserve them, they they wouldn't survive. But verse 14 says it's exactly what he does. He gives the woman the ability to to flee to a place that God preserves them. King Louis XIV of France asked Blaise Pascal, the great Christian philosopher, to give him proof of the existence of God. And Pascal answered... Why, the Jews, Your Majesty, the Jews. That's the evidence that he offered of God. The Jews constitute one quarter of one percent of the human race. But the world's list of great names of literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine are permeated with Jewish names. The Jewish people... Throughout their 2,700 years since they've been scattered throughout the earth before they they started regathering in the nation of Israel is mind-boggling. They were dispersed in over 130 different nations worldwide, brutally mistreated. 
And yet they didn't just survive, they, they, they thrived. I want you to buckle up because I'm going to give you some statistics that, that are mind-blowing. But they're all true. These are statistics about Israel and the Jewish people today. And you listen to these and tell me how, how any of it would be possible apart from God's hand of blessing upon the, Israel, the, the Jewish people. Israel is only one-sixth of one percent. One-sixth of one percent of the land mass of the Middle East. Israel is roughly half the size of Lake Michigan, the entire nation. It has only 2% of the population in the Middle East, surrounded on every side by countries that have vowed to destroy them. And yet Israel has the highest ratio of university degrees per capita in the world. Israel produces more scientific papers per capita than any other nation in the world by a large margin. Israel has the highest number of scientists and technicians per capita in the world. Israel has the highest number of engineers per capita in the world. Israel has the highest number of PhDs per capita in the world. Israel has the highest number of physicians per capita in the world. Israel has the largest percentage of its workforce employed in technical professions in the world. Israel is the only country in the Middle East where the Christian population has grown over the last 50 years. It's the only country in the Middle East where Christians, Muslims, and Jews are all free to vote. It's the only country in the Middle East where women enjoy full political rights. Israel has the largest number of startup companies per capita in the world. Israel has the largest number of NASDAQ-listed companies outside of the U.S. and Canada, apart from the Silicon Valley. It has the highest concentration of high-tech companies in the world. The cell phone was developed in Israel at Motorola's largest developmental center. The voicemail technology, voicemail technology was developed in Israel. In the early 1980s, IBM chose an Israeli-designed computer chip as the brains for the first personal computer. The first antivirus software for computers was developed in Israel in 1979. Most of the Windows... Software system, NTXP operating system, was developed in Israel by Microsoft. The Pentium 4 and Centrino processors were entirely developed and designed in Israel. Israel has the highest number of home computers per capita in the world. The technology that AOL used way back when to to start Instant Messenger was developed by four young Israelis. Hebrew is the only case of a dead national language ever being revived in world history. Hebrew had not been spoken as a native tongue by anyone for centuries. And yet today it's the native tongue of millions of people. Israel has more museums per capita than any other nation in the world. It has more orchestras per capita than any other nation in the world. Israel publishes more books per capita than any other nation in the world. Israel's dairy cows are the most productive dairy cows in the world, a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to these statistics. They, uh, Israeli dairy cows average 25,432 pounds of milk per year compared to 18,000. 
25,432 compared to 18,747 pounds from American cows. 17,000 from Canadian cows. 13,000 from European cows. 10,000 from Australian cows. And 6,600 from Chinese cows. I guess the Chinese cows don't produce a lot of milk. You think about that. It's itty-bitty little place. And yet, 175 of the UN Security Council resolutions passed before 1990. Of 175 of them, 97 were directed against Israel. And of the 690 in the UN General Assembly after 1990, 429 of them were directed against Israel. You don't think that there's a hatred and a blessing of of God's people? Will Varner of the Master's College said it this way, No nation in the history of the world has ever been exiled from its land, lost its national existence and language, and then returned as a people to that identical homeland and even revived its ancient tongue. No nation. That is except one. The nation of Israel. And just like all of the, throughout all of history, God will preserve Israel in this future tribulation. Look at verse 14. The woman will be given two wings and she's going to be preserved for three and a half years, which is the second half of the tribulation period. And like Elijah, when he met Jezebel, he was cared for divinely by God from the ravens and God will divinely preserve a remnant of Israel somewhere in the wilderness, it says. She's going to be nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. Now, we're not told exactly where they're going to flee to. Some people believe it's Petra. That's, that's possible. But it's awful small to, to hold all of the, the nation of Israel. Regardless of where it is, they're going to survive and they're going to they're going to enter the kingdom, and that's going to make the devil even even angrier. Look at verse fifteen. It says so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the by the flood. The serpent will spew out water like a flood. There's this great global army of the one world government that will be under Satan's command in the tribulation period. He's going to unleash that on on the nation of Israel. And the world will unite against the Jews, but the earth will open open its mouth and swallow up this this great army. Verse 16, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, the, the great army, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. What could that be? I don't know. An earthquake? Could be literal. And the things that are going to be taking place during the tribulation period are going to be active during this time. Some other event. Whatever it is, is the point that God will preserve Israel from Satan's wrath and, and from his destruction. And he is going to have a special hatred for those Jews and the Gentiles that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. Look at verse 17. 
And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It will be those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ that, that he'll, he'll wage war against as, as, as well. Now, the church has been raptured at this point in time of the Bible, but, but Scripture tells us that there will be people saved during the tribulation period. And the Jews will be preserved by God as a remnant. And they'll be lost. They'll be unsaved. They'll be God's people. And a number of them will perish without Christ during the tribulation period. But those that are alive and those that remain, the Bible says that they will be converted before they enter in the millennial kingdom. Christ will come in the second coming and they will look upon Him. And in that moment, they will believe. And in believing... They'll be saved. Some of those Jews, though, will be converted even before the tribulation period is over, just like Jews are converted today. And there will also be Gentiles. I think I've told you the story before about witnessing to, to Boaz. Both Mike Cook and I have, have, have done that. And he said he would have no problem if when Messiah comes, if he was Jesus and in that moment, he said, I would have no problem if when Messiah comes, he's Jesus, I would have no problem bowing the knee to him and confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And my answer to him is, is the same I would say to you. Um, if you don't know the Lord, the problem is you don't know whether you're going to make it until that day. Um, if Boaz is alive, and if he looks upon Jesus and believes... And the Bible says he'll be saved, but we don't have any promise of tomorrow. And, and, and based upon what we see, the gauntlet that, that is, is going gonna, is gonna, uh, gonna to have to be run in order to get to that point, why would you ever want to take that risk when the gospel is freely offered to all who will call upon him? Many will suffer a martyr's death. Some Jews, some Gentile will believe, but all, before the tribulation, during the tribulation, during the millennial kingdom, they'll all come the same way, the same way that you and I came. They'll come by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's talking about here with his, with his testimony. Praise be to his name. Is it encouraging to you as you see God fulfill? keep His promises to Israel? It should be. Because that means if He'll keep His promises to them, an obstinate, stubborn, and rebellious people, He'll keep His promises to us that act just like them sometimes.